Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When Diplomacy Fails presents. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello when Diplomacy Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War I the Dutch Revolt To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years' War The July Crisis Anniversary Project The Swedish Deluge Britain Goes to War The 1916 To the Rising. Franco-Dutch War of 1672 This is When Diplomacy Fails Remastered This is the fourth and final part of When Diplomacy Fails remastered look at the War of the Spanish Succession, which originally aired as one episode on the 27th of June, 2012. Welcome to the fourth and final episode of the War of the Spanish Succession. Last time we brought you up to speed with the hard times of Louis' wartime experience, as the strength of the Allies began to tell and the pressure began to expose cracks in the Bourbon defence. What Louis needed to hold out for was a better peace, a true end goal, and to this end he appealed to the people of France for aid and courage. It was a revolutionary idea, some might say, but it remained to be seen how effective such an appeal would actually be. With the campaigning season approaching in 1709, the true test was sure to come soon. I will now take you to spring, 17. Do not imitate the taste I have had for buildings, nor in that which I have had for war. The last alleged words of Louis XIV to his great-grandson on his deathbed in 1715. 
It might not surprise you to learn that after years of being caught in the middle, the average citizen in France was less enthusiastic for the continuation of the war than the romantic nobility. And after almost a decade of fighting, most of France desired peace, not even withstanding the previous wars and the very small breaks of peace they had had in between this war and the previous ones. What was witnessed, though, was the more famous sight of the nobility donating their silver and gold wares to be melted down and lumped into the National Mint for the war effort, an act which Louis himself also contributed to. Yet, it would be wrong to apply this anecdote to the entire French court, just as it would be incorrect to claim that the money raised offset the massive deficit in France which the war brought about. Garrisons in a number of French border towns were revolting from want of pay and food, causing a desperate situation whereby the very French soldier could become one's enemy if the state was not careful. Louis set the Duke of Villars to the unenviable task of resurrecting the Bourbon war effort, but it was a task which seemed insurmountable, especially when the fall of Tournai, another critical note in the French ring of fortresses, gradually fell to the Allies over the summer of 1709. When Allied armies moved to besiege Mons shortly after, Villars was determined that he block their path, representing as he did perhaps the last line of practical defence before Paris. Should Mons follow the fate of Tournai, Louis had told him, our case is undone, the cost is not to be considered, the salvation of France is at stake. The panic in Louis's tone was palpable, as he had no doubt been spooked by the loss of yet another of the late Vauban's fortresses in Tournai. On the 11th of September 1709, an Allied army under the joint command of Marlborough and Eugene of Savoy marched towards Paris with an army of 86,000 men and was met by the Duke of Villars' army of 75,000 men, consisting mainly of raw recruits. The French were on the defensive. Churchill planned on hitting the flanks of the French army to thin out the centre and then win the battle by moving quickly and attacking the centre. It was the same tactic he had used before, and as usual Eugene was on hand to help share command. Imagine the battlefield like this, because, that's right, it's mind map time, guys. There are two expanses of wood on the left and right side of the battlefield, and the centre is open ground. The French line extends into the two woods on both flanks, meaning the Allies will have to attack them in the woods to knock them out. Marlborough, almost without regard for human life, sent his German contingent out to attack the French left. The German soldiers marched across 800 yards of open ground, in full view and range of the French artillery. It would have been insane military tactics if it hadn't been standard military procedure for the era. As the German soldiers moved with a near robotic stoicism, unflinching even in the face of awful losses and artillery fire, Eugene commanded the Allies to attack the French right flank, and the Germans weren't alone. The Dutch would lose 5,000 men in the first hour of the battle through the terrible combination of musket and cannon, an ordeal which the average soldier was simply expected to grin and bear. The constant pounding French shot sent the Allies retreating until a charge from the Hessian cavalry rallied them back into the fight. Villars could see what Marlborough's plan was, as Villars knew he himself had been forced to play right into it as he began to reinforce his weaker flanks with the troops from his centre. Villars was in the process of organising a counter-attack with what troops he could find when he was hit. 
He refused to leave the battle though and continued coordinating troop movements until he lost consciousness and had to be taken from the field. The French army then saw its centre face a charge and the battle descended into a gritty, bloody affair as men fought hand-to-hand and cannons fired at cavalry from only a few feet away. Eventually, when the Allied superiority in numbers became too much, the French army began to retreat in good order, enabling Marlborough to claim a victory for the day. But it was only a victory in that the French had retreated. In all their aspects, it had been a catastrophic battle for the Allies. They had lost nearly 30,000 men, while the French had lost just about 10,000. Upon learning of the logistics of the battle, Villars, who later recovered in the Spanish hospital, said in a letter to Louis, If it pleases God to give your majesty's enemies another such victory, they shall be destroyed. Historian John A. Lynn wrote of the battle that, Defeated as the French were, this was not another Blenheim or Ramillier, for they retired in good order with flags waving, drums beating, and drawing off 65 of their cannon with them. The Allies were too exhausted and too bloodied to pursue. Even Marlborough was willing to give credit to the tenacious French defence, which, even as the battle turned evidently against them, held the field against superior Allied cavalry, infantry, and cannon. The French, reported Marlborough, have defended themselves better in this action than in any battle I've ever seen. This battle, the Battle of Malplaquet, had been the definition of an Allied Pyrrhic victory. Neither the Dutch nor the British would ever allow the apparently wasteful Marlborough to command again. This would be his last battle. The Gazette de France, the contemporary news bulletin of the day, noted on Malplaquet that In more than a century, there had not been a single moment so bloody or so remitting. It was, in short, the bloodiest and most horrific battle of the war of the Spanish succession, with casualties and wounds not repeated on such a scale until the French Revolution. But Louis was not as positive, nor was he retrospective enough to note the significance of the French gaining victory through defeat. He still had enemies in his lands, and he didn't really have an army at that stage with which to repel them. The war in Europe was about to change, though, beginning with the political situation in Britain. Marlborough's losses had not gone unnoticed. He had been long known as a general who gave little regard for the loss of his soldiers' lives, so long as the victory was achieved in the end. It was said that one of Marlborough's noted flaws was the little value that he placed on an individual's life, and this, combined with politics at home which were out of his control, caused Britain to recall Marlborough later that year. Two key events occurred in Britain at this time which would drastically change the direction of the war in Europe. First, Queen Anne managed to have a severe falling out with Marlborough's wife, Sarah Churchill, and the resulting repercussions were that John Churchill fell from favour as well. Second, a new government, which favoured peace with Louis, came to power in Britain in late 1709 and began making moves to acquire it with France. Louis was of course equally desperate, but again he would have to endure the humiliation of Allied peace terms, which by early 1710, following the bloody experience of Malplaquet, were still more insulting than they had ever been. Believing Louis to be at his lowest ebb, the Allies demanded the same terms as before, except now Louis would have to evict Philip from Spain without Allied help. In short, this meant that Louis would declare war on his grandson, as the Allies looked on. Disgusted, Louis nonetheless offered the Allies 500,000 livres 
if they would agree to earlier peace terms and evict Philip themselves. A strange compromise, since it'd mean Louis would be paying for his grandson's removal rather than actively bringing it about, but again, the Allies said no. It was to prove a mistake for the Allied camp, as these terms were the best that they would be in a position to get. By 1710, Britain became increasingly reluctant to commit any more men, just as Villars began to recover from his wounds and resume command of French forces in Flanders in May of that year. The Allies managed to field an army of 60,000 for the year, to the bare presence of the French, and while Marlborough and Eugene remained in command, at least for the moment, they aimed for the next line of smaller concentrated fortresses behind the larger ones like Lille and Tournai, which had fallen in previous campaigns. This was the next logistical step in the invasion of the tough French defensive line, but it was destined to be yet more costly, and British statesmen, themselves weary of the war and eager for its conclusion, appreciated that more unwanted sacrifices would have to be made for the next phase of the war to be successfully borne out. Villars' major goal was to buy time until this very public dissatisfaction with the war in the Allied camp proved too great, with the hope that France could essentially outlast its enemies, but the challenge was a severe one in 1710, as Allied armies, many times larger than his own, had command of the field, and were able to besiege the inner layer of French defences at will. With the success of Allied arms in taking the linked fortresses of Douai, Bethune, Saint-Venant and Air, a gap of 50 miles was punched in the French defences, with only Villars on the third and final line of defences, blocking Paris from the Allies. Setting in for winter quarters by mid-November along the Flanders front, 1711 was viewed by the Allied commanders as the end game for France. They had punched a considerable hole in the French defensive line, and now they merely had to filter through it. Spain seemed to be a brighter spark in dark times, as initial losses by Philip, apparently abandoned by his grandfather, as France treated with the Allies over the summer, were offset once these deals came to nothing and French reinforcements could return to Spain. Even though he was on the back foot for much of 1710 and Madrid was even captured yet again by the Allies, a move which saw Archduke Charles arrive in Spain to claim his inheritance, the situation didn't quite go against the Bourbons in Spain. In contrast to Bourbon fortunes elsewhere, Philip enjoyed numerical superiority once French reinforcements came to aid him, and by November he had driven the Anglo-German forces back into the safety of Catalonia. Such a turnaround was commented on by one of Louis's contemporaries, who noted that, No matter what, never has such a victory been more complete, and this day will change the face of affairs in Spain, and at the same time those of Europe. Indeed, with the Allies pushed out, it was far less likely that Louis would consent to unseating his grandson from the Spanish throne. Not only did Philip seem to have the local support, he also enjoyed the greater strategic and material advantages over the Allies, who had largely fought an overseas campaign away from their stores. As 1711 approached, Louis reinforced his third line of defences, which were destined to face the wrath of the Allies, but only if those Allies could cooperate. Britain was by far the greatest ray of hope for Louis. After having replaced many of Marlborough's Whig friends in a cabinet shake-up of August 1710 with her own Tory supporters, since Whigs made her nervous, 
Queen Anne made a somewhat disastrous step in the direction of removing Marlborough's previously untouchable power base. It was in spring 1711 that these chickens finally came home to roost, as genuine peace negotiations, designed at bringing France and Britain to a separate peace on far better terms than the Allies had offered the summer before, were instigated and quickly gained ground. Louis evidently understood the value in bringing London out of the war. For nearly a decade, her money and men had watered those of the Allies, and without her input, they would be less able to coordinate or pool resources, let alone afford the war itself. It was an ironic scene, which may not have been lost on Louis. In 1672, at the height of his ambition, Louis's armies had laid waste to the Dutch and and then they demanded the harshest terms from the Dutch. When the Dutch declared their fundamental unwillingness to accept these terms, even breaking off negotiations and protest, Louis scorned their intransigence. Now, it was Louis who scoffed, and it was he who broke off terms, 40 years later, but with the demanding Dutch and their allies. The shoe was on the other foot, but Louis would not treat with the Dutch, instead only allowing his agents to treat with the more willing and conciliatory British. This, Louis believed, made more sense in the grand scheme of Allied designs in any case. The message then was clear by 1711. Without Britain, the Allied war effort could not be maintained at its previously high levels for very long. Aside from the fact that many Germans were growing weary of the conflict and contrarian parties within the Netherlands were following suit, the sheer lengths that the Allies had already gone to reduce Louis' France and the additional commitments which would still be required of them if they were to gain favourable terms, put many Allied statesmen off the idea of continuing the war past 1711. It simply didn't seem worth the expenditure to all but the most zealous of the Allies. The war, Louis hoped, would end by 1712. Indeed, before 1711 was over, Marlborough would be out of the Allied command, leaving Eugene to pick up the slack as the Allied command faltered. In spite of the Allied crisis in command and the peace negotiations which were ongoing, Louis held Villars back from taking any major risks in 1711. In the months before his dismissal, Marlborough enjoyed some notable moments in command. In May, when French forces seemed poised to challenge Allied control of Douai, which they had taken the previous year, the scene descended, for whatever reason, into one reminiscent of the 1914 Christmas Day truce football match between the Germans and British. At one point, the old pretender and Villars marched to the British and Allied lines, and soldiers fraternised with Marlborough and Eugene, as British soldiers were invited by Villars to greet their rightful king. The records out on how Marlborough felt about this blatant act of treason in front of the soldiers, considering, on the other hand, the very bad terms he was on by now with Queen Anne, but the Allied war effort for 1711 remained in doubt over the spring as peace negotiations continued. Armies marched ostensibly in support of these peace negotiations, intending to apply the old maxim of making war work for peace. The more successes on the battlefield that could be enjoyed, the more pressure would be brought to bear upon the peacemakers. While Louis was certainly on the way towards losing the war, What remained to be seen was whether the Allies could either keep up the pressure or remain a cohesive unit until the necessary work was finished. While a large hole had been punched in the old Vauban's fortifications, the third and final line of less impressive but still interconnected fortresses remained to guard the French border with Flanders, and along the Rhine in 1711, 
Both sides merely eyeballed one another in anticipation. French armies were simply not strong enough to attack by this stage, but the Holy Roman Empire's constitution, on the other hand, had been paralysed following the death of Joseph in April 1711, and the need then arose to elect a successor. In the event, as it would have it, Archduke Charles, Joseph's younger brother, and previously the claimant on the Spanish throne for the last decade, would be chosen to succeed him. Above all, this meant that Charles's designs on Spain would have to be abandoned, and with that there seemed little real point in continuing the war in the name of Spain. Charles was not the only figure who was beginning to tire determinedly of the war. Definite peace negotiations were in their final stages in Britain. As Queen Anne sought desperately to absolve Britain of the war and recoup the deficit which had plagued Britain since the 1680s. In late January 1712, Britain, Austria and the Dutch sent representatives to Utrecht where French and Bavarian plenipotentiaries waited to meet them. Over the course of 1712, the peace agreements for so long shunned in favour of more war were finally adhered to with some interest. The Allies, it seemed, wanted peace more than they wanted to make Louis overtly suffer. It was an outcome Louis had quite literally clung on to for years. He had barely scraped by the worst of their demands, and only for the legacy left by the great military engineer Vauban, who simply presented the Allies with too many nuts to crack over and over again, not to mention the rampant overtaxation and stretching of his people to beyond their limits, France would have been lost. The circumstances which saw Britain definitively bow out of the conflict as the peace preliminaries of 1712 progressed enabled Louis to organise for a series of final campaigns, which would in time return the 53 fortresses that had been lost, but he would still have to grant certain concessions. Perhaps the most notable aspect of the peace negotiations were how they were affected by Louis's own succession. As Louis's second eldest grandson, Philip of Spain, king of Spain for nearly a decade by this stage, had once... There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. 
Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Seemed relatively insulated from succeeding to the throne of France. Initially, his very position as King of Spain had been enough to provoke a war, but this came mostly out of the concern, if you can remember, that the Bourbons would take over the Franco-Spanish inheritance and pool their resources. Therefore, although these concerns remained, by 1712 they now looked quite different. The Allies no longer refused to accept Philip as King of Spain, in large part because their previous candidate Charles was now Holy Roman Emperor. What they refused was the possibility that, through familial death or accident, the Spanish and French thrones could somehow end up in Philip's hands. Such fears would have been unfounded, but for the succession of tragedies which hit Louis over the space of a year. In 1711, his eldest son and heir, the Grand Dauphin, had died, while in the spring of 1712, as the delicate negotiations were ongoing, Louis's eldest grandson, the Duke of Burgundy, and thus Philip of Spain's older brother, also died. Even worse than this, Burgundy's eldest son, and therefore Louis's great-grandson, also died mere weeks later. Suddenly, to the shock of Europe, there seemed precious little to stop Philip inheriting both crowns once Louis XIV died. The only person that would prevent this in the Bourbon succession, and thus hopes of peace for the continent, rested upon a two-year-old toddler, the late Duke of Burgundy's younger son, in other words, Louis's second great-grandson, who was himself sick with measles. Thus we can understand that the atmosphere would have been somewhat testy as news continued to filter in of Europe's dwindling chances to avoid yet another war. Though they had come to accept Philip, the entire war had been launched to prevent the two states sharing the same king, and after having come this far, the Allies could not allow any ambiguity to remain. Louis, to his credit, was far from willing to push them either. While he would never order his grandson Philip around, he did reason with him on the basis of maintaining peace. That much would be resolved if Philip would renounce his claims on the French throne in favour of the Spanish one. That Louis did this at all, and he did, considering his view of the divine right of kings, reflects the fact that even Louis now accepted that the war had to come to an end, and that no future flashpoints could be allowed to remain. It was time at last to make a peace which would last. By June 1712, it seemed that Louis XIV had at last developed a formula for the succession of the Bourbon crowns, or at the very least France, which the Allies would find acceptable, and thus one of the major stumbling blocks to peace had been removed. Queen Anne could at least inform her subjects that, because of the pressure of British arms, the Franco-Spanish Union had not been allowed to take place, and after so many years of war, this was considered acceptable enough to be seen as a victory. An armistice between British and French forces was signed on the 21st of August, 1712, and British men began filtering out of the continent soon after. With the absence of British men and materials and the definite absence of British monies, key institutions along the Franco-Flanders border were suddenly less impregnable. In a breathtaking act of tenacity and daring, Louis authorised Villars to seize whatever he could in a series of lightning campaigns, aimed at restoring the status quo antebellum along the border, in other words, the state of affairs before the war broke out. Through this, Louis hoped that he could pull a victory out of the jaws of defeat, especially if he struck while the Allies hummed and hawed at Utrecht. 
It wasn't so much the British absence, but the suddenness of it that stung Eugene of Savoy, who became the supreme Allied commander in Flanders in mid-July 1712, when it became clear that the British and French had already agreed to make peace separately. With the new British commander, the Duke of Ormond, evacuating with his men, several German contingents in British pay went over to the Dutch side, enabling Eugene to maintain his relative presence in Flanders. The new Emperor Charles also sent reinforcements to the region, remember no peace had been made yet except between Britain and France, and the effect worked because by this time one of the final fortresses in the Allies' way, Le Canoy, fell, thus exposing the French interior for a massive Allied invasion. With the capture of this third-line fortress, France appeared to be lost even as French negotiators were increasingly standing up for themselves at Utrecht. To finish the job, Eugene invested Landresis, the last stop-off before Paris on the 17th of July 1712. If this fort fell, it was merely a forced march to Paris, and the Allies would be able to demand whatever they desired. It was now that Villars struck. Though outnumbered by the Allies, he feigned a march to relieve Landresis, only to march 20 miles in the dead of night to reach a Dutch fortified camp, some way to the right of that fortress, where about 10,000 Dutch defended a critical crossing over the Scheldt. Before Eugene really grasped what was happening, Villars' 30,000 men bore down on the 10,000 Dutch, and within hours the French won the day. With this victory on the 24th of July, Villars continued north and seized the Allied magazine a week later at Marchienne, and with these supplies, he surged forward over early August to take back the forts seized by the Allies in the years before, including Douai, Le Canoy, and Bouchain. At this, Villars had restored the second line of fortresses along the French border. Not only that, but he had trapped Eugene within it, who himself had been forced to withdraw from besieging Landresis on the 29th of July. With the Allied supplies in enemy hands and the French holding all the strategic advantages after all the years of the Allies holding them against the French, Eugene reasoned that it would have been pointless to remain in enemy territory. He left French-controlled Flanders with the remnants of his army, artillery and baggage train, and the French watched him go mostly unassailed. There was a sense that this was the last time Eugene would bother them again, so they weren't about to provoke him. The Te Deum sounded in Paris while Louis praised the courage and fortitude of his men, and of course Villars. The Battle of Denaim, so called after the fortified position held by those 10,000 beleaguered Dutch on the 24th of July, was perhaps the most critical battle of the war after 1711. It virtually saved France from either harsh Allied demands or the idea that the war's latter phase had all been a series of catastrophes. Indeed, the battle seemed to have resurrected France, but Napoleon put it best when he reasoned that the Battle of Denaim saved her. While Louis saw his troops evict the foreign powers from his lands, he knew it would be foolish to expect them to continue the fight into foreign lands. He was determined at this stage to make peace, and he achieved it with the Netherlands, Britain, Prussia, Portugal and Savoy, with the Treaty of Utrecht on the 11th of April, 1713 as previous armistices became official. Austria would fight on until signing the Treaty of Rastatt, which brought a truce, and Baden, which brought a ceasefire in 1714. 
The terms of the peace meant that Philip V remained king of Spain, but that he had to renounce his claims to the French throne once and for all, as we saw. Spain's European empire was also divided up between the Allies, contrary to the expressed desires of Carlos II, as Savoy received Sicily and Milan for its troubles, while Austria gained the Spanish Netherlands and Naples. Britain gained some overseas territories in Canada and America, but such gains were small in terms of land. The Netherlands gained parts of the Spanish Netherlands before Austria received the rest, and even Prussia got in when they gained some southern German territory. It had taken many months and countless preliminaries, but peace had finally come to Europe, and the war of the Spanish succession had finally, mercifully, come to an end. When historians examine the War of the Spanish Succession, they tend to present it as a tough slog for both sides, with France reaching the end of its limits, before the unity of the Allies crumbled under the weight of incessant campaigning. The refusal of Louis to accept terms that would compromise his family, and the eye his generals like Villars had for an opening, like at the Battle of Denaime, played pivotal roles in recouing French fortunes. Disagreements over how to proceed in the Allied camp and the sheer exhaustion in financial and military terms played additional roles in gradually reducing the passions the Allies had for the original end goal of removing Philip from the Spanish throne. John A. Lynn underlined the fact that Louis outlasted the will of the British Parliament to continue a costly continental war, while other historians attest to the changing war aims of the Allies, impacted by their own misunderstandings of the Spanish situation, where Philip V actually enjoyed the support of the majority of the Spanish people. Because the Allies couldn't fight in the name of Spain, they lost much of the moral force of the argument which brought them to war in the first place. Perhaps because of this, and don't forget, because Charles became Holy Roman Emperor, so their main candidate for the Spanish throne was gone, while it would be wrong to say that the wind had been taken out of the Allied sails, there was a gradual acceptance of the status quo in Spain, since it was recognised that no amount of Allied force could change the Spanish people's minds. The need to redirect Allied aims was demonstrated in their determined whittling away of Louis' fence of iron, as the major fortress of Lille, the supporting fortresses behind it, and additional fortresses behind them, eventually fell to the Allies. Though France was faced with this desperate situation, the strategic vulnerability of the Allies was found in their overextension and the sudden extrication of the British from the scene in summer 1712, which massively influenced morale on both sides. It was Villars' ingenuity that exploited this situation and the gap that the British left, but this shouldn't lead us to believe that he brought the war to a victorious conclusion for France. Villars' exploits returned numerous fortresses to France and enabled Louis to claim that a great victory was at hand, but had the Allies decided to force the issue, this was still the same France that couldn't feed its people or pay its soldiers. Whether Villars had taken the old ring of iron or not, France was still irreparably damaged after a decade of war, and only peace could heal such damage. Of course, the Brexit from the war didn't help the Allied effort, and Eugene remained mightily peeved for the remainder of his life at the British conduct here, so a case could certainly be made that the Allies without Britain were simply not willing to fight for fortresses which had already been taken. Perhaps more than anything though, the reason why the war wound down can be found in the preliminaries of Utrecht, 
where most of the powers actually achieved satisfaction for their war aims, and no longer felt the need to continue the war in support of them. If satisfaction could be achieved through peace, the continued expenditure from war was surely only a waste. Indeed, this was the view of most of the peace parties in Europe, especially the Dutch. So, there's the question then. How do we judge this last great war of Louis XIV's reign? His last great act, perhaps his last gamble as well, you could argue. And the tumultuous opening act of the 18th century to boot. Well, as we said, I think it'd be wrong to present the war as a great victory. Were you to survey the French countryside at this point and have a few brief interviews with the French peasantry that had for so long suffered there, any idea of a French victory would surely be put to bed. At the same time, though, France had survived through its most trying defeats, some of which would go down in history as so inherently devastating, it's a wonder they didn't lead to peace immediately after. Losses at Blenheim, Remilier, and Turin dramatically altered the military landscape of the war for France, and it forced Louis to rely on the series of fortifications which had been established by Vauban over the previous decades. Perhaps in a sense, the War of the Spanish Succession can be seen as a vindication of that late great military engineer's work. Without Vauban's ring of iron, the Allies would have poured through the border far sooner than they did in June 1712. As the war took on various shapes and drew in different parties, the one constant was the reliance Louis could place on these fortresses, some of which stretched tens of miles, contained thousands of tons of works and employed many hundreds of thousands at one point or another. Even more so than the survival of France, these fortifications were the true marvel of the War of the Spanish Succession. Almost as soon as the war ended, so too did the life of one of the greatest figures in European memory. Louis XIV died not long after the end of the war on the 1st of September, 1715. His life is one which we have covered in many episodes, and like my peers, I have contributed countless hours, words, and effort into bringing his story to life. He was an enigma, a figure never seen before in the history of France and arguably never seen again, with the exception perhaps of Napoleon, Yet he inspired his countrymen through their hardest times, and he would provide inspiration for generations of French to come. His tenacity and conviction led him to prolong wars which would not have lasted without his input. At the same time, it is unlikely that the French could have or would have followed a lesser monarch or even a series of monarchs, rather than the indomitable Louis, who outlived so many of his descendants and outlasted so many of his rivals. Generations of families had grown up in the shadow of the Sun King, and their fortunes had waxed and waned while Louis's gambles had alternatively paid off or doomed his countrymen to suffering over the decades. No doubt he spent more resources on war than any other king, and forced his countrymen to endure trials and tribulations without apparent consideration for their lives or livres. But at the same time, it would be wrong to present Louis as the selfish warmonger, who only survived because of a series of lucky breaks. After his initial phase of youth-induced wars for honour and glory, Louis adapted his thinking to incorporate glory into the defence of the realm. Here, Vauban's fortresses became paramount, and as the enemies of France rallied against him, Louis declared his belief that it would represent a stain on the glory of his reign 
or these enemies to penetrate the ring of iron in which he was so invested, or to establish a foothold in his beloved country. As Louis's ideas of what it meant to be a great monarch changed, so too did Europe. By the time the Spanish throne was up for grabs, Europe had tired of the war-eager Louis and remained inherently unwilling to relent. That Philip V would bring the Bourbon monarchy to Spain had as much to do with the Spanish people's own passion for that prince as it did with the fatigue and frustration of the Allies, but Louis's own pragmatism led him to develop the formula which would please the powers of Europe, give his grandson the throne of Spain and perhaps bring a lasting peace to France. Such developments, don't forget, were only possible because of Louis's on-the-job learning and his appreciation of the fact that, after a reign spanning six-plus decades and life in the minds and hearts of generations of his countrymen, peace was worth the price. So it was that the War of the Spanish Succession came to an end, with the Bourbon on the thrones of Spain and France, and Europe scarred from another decade of war. Once again, it seemed, Mars had been unleashed and then pacified by the Sun King. As Louis succumbed to his own mortality, perhaps he wondered how posterity would view his reign or or how the series of wars he launched for varying reasons would be interpreted. Would he be the warmonger, the cruel and calculating absolutist, or the scheming manipulator acting in the best interests of his house? Would his countrymen mourn him or celebrate his passing? Would his enemies bow in respect or curse his name? Perhaps after decades of ruling Europe's most powerful state, and after carrying on his shoulders the burdens of his house and nation, Louis merely wished to rest. The maps would show that Louis greatly increased the borders of France, but that because he did so within the confines of the international system, these border changes became permanent. The root of the issue was whether the losses had been worth it, especially in this war, as France had been brought lower than ever before. Historian John A. Lynn, who we've relied upon so many times for the narratives of Louis's life, gives us a good summary, so I think it's only fitting we end it with him. Lynn wrote, Later ages must ask, did the old monarch fight because he loved war or because he saw it as an acceptable means towards his ends? The answer is that in his early years, even if he did not love war per se, he lusted after the glory that only war could win him. Yet he did not embark on the Nine Years' War because he loved war, but because he had become addicted to violent solutions and too confident of success. And in the last war, perhaps the most costly of them all, he seems to have had little choice. The interests of the Bourbon dynasty were clear, and he failed not in making the wrong decisions, but in executing a reasonable one in such a clumsy fashion that he created a European war which he did not want and could not win. In the end, he had become a victim of his own offensive arrogance not his love of war. Love of war, or weakness in arrogance aside, the stark truth at the time of his death was that his country had been so exhausted and depleted, and was 2.5 billion livres in debt by 1715, it was scarcely possible to enjoy these apparent increases in territory. It is worth remembering, though, that in contrast to Louis XIV, the next great shake-up, led by France seen under Napoleon, so overblew French borders and European sensibilities that France would actually emerge in 1815 after the Napoleonic party, much reduced from its 1799 self, 
It is also worth noting that when Napoleon did come to France, he looked back on the example set by Louis XIV, and he did his very best to emulate him, as the French people saw their fortunes rise and fall, and Mars once again became the companion of France. So, that is it for today, guys. Please remember Be Fit when thinking of ways to contact or support this podcast. I want to throw a big apology out there for the countless French names of towns and fortresses, etc. that I undoubtedly pronounced wrong. I'm only human. I'm also Irish. I'm terrible at French. Don't hate me. I hope you're enjoying the remastered special, guys, and that you'll continue to follow it as we unpack the next war. I'll give you a little hint in case you didn't know from our back catalogue. It has been occurring in the background to this one. With that being said then, guys, thanks for listening, and I will see you all soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 